into positions of hopelessness and helplessness. The government gives them the drugs, builds bigger prisons, passes a three-strike law, and then wants us to sing God Bless America. No, no, no. People of Kiev need to laugh. They need to hear about how baristas are uh, shitty, entitled hipsters, and they go, uh, uh, Hey, someone put a pronoun in my latte. Yeah. Baristas? Baristas. That's a breakaway republic in eastern Ukraine. Sure, why not? Um, They need to hear about how kids uh, can be shitty and they need to see a man with orange hair touch a wall with his free arm that's not on the microphone backwards in a really specific way. Folks, for some reason, Louis C.K. was going to perform in Kiev the week World War III started. It's very funny. He could have been nuked. He could have been <laughs> assassinated and kicked off all sorts of bizarre international things. Um, I think he didn't actually end up making it there. But this is just fucking weird detail about this week that he was like booked. It's also really funny because like, um, you know, just the whole like I'm canceled thing is like you kind of caught red handed. If you're like, wait a minute, you were working in Ukraine <laughs> this whole time. <laughs> what the fuck, dude? Um, in Louis defense. We all could have been nuked last Thursday. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it would have been as funny for us to have been nuked. Well, that's true. A lot of people. Yeah. I would have just been doing normal shit when I became a shadow on a wall. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the emergency World War Three Ukraine episode of the show where we are just going to talk about Book of Boba Fett for three and a half hours. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, we're going to talk about the actual thing that's happening. Um, hello, everyone. I'm Jake Flores. Anders Lee is here. Anders Lee here. Oh, sounded exhausted. Uh, Alex Patak is here. What's up, y'all? We're here three days later. What happened? Nope. <laughs> what happened um, oh my god lot. what happened i don't know man let's maybe start off with just uh where we're all at with this because me personally i've been really stressed out because i am a comedian who has a politics podcast and the craziest shit ever is happening politically and like i'm not i don't i'm eastern european geopolitics are not my fucking wheelhouse i don't know like what the fuck really to say about this and i'm in a place where i'm i'm i think i'm one of the people who's like you know kind of doing the thing which this is a take in itself but like maybe uh don't talk right now because clearly everything's going to change so much and like we're just getting a handle on all this shit and like you're just going to look stupid if you immediately dive into some fucking camp or whatever and like but i've been i've been thinking a lot about how mad everyone got at us when we did the fake iran episode and they were like no like tell us what you think you know but we are comedians and we're not the news but we are political and so like I'm in this gray area where I'm trying to get a handle on everything, but I still am gestating, man. I don't know. Oh, I think I got it. Yeah. It's game over it for 
imperialism now. To me, it's like, okay, we're a leftist show. The most important thing is to understand. I mean, it's not just because we're a leftist show. The, The most important thing to understand is like the nature of imperialism and the class dynamics and everything. And, you know, what you don't want to do is do what class blind liberals do, which is like go into these weird tunnels where they very much need to have a take on this, but because they can't like, can't see the world for what it is, they're doing this bizarre stuff. Like, uh, you know, putting Ukrainian flags in their like names on Twitter and stuff. And just sort of like, uh, like a lot of people are like really into Zelensky, you know, cause he's like a comedian and stuff. And like, uh, in order to not do that, it seems like you like the thing to do is to understand that, uh, you know, within, within States, there are the ruling class and the working class and stuff. And so like, it's stupid to be like vehemently anti everyone in Russia over this because it's just the Russian government that's doing this. Oh yeah. I mean, the American public is a bunch of, uh, uh, angry pigs who got poked with a stick and are now squealing at the top of their lungs. But, uh, I don't know. What, what are you confused about really? Because it's like a different country invaded a smaller country. I saw a really succinct takeaway from this sent out like halfway through the week, which was uh, the lesson from this is what everybody else learned in 2003, which is that any country with ICBMs or an alliance to a country with ICBMs can invade any country that doesn't have that because what the fuck is anyone else going to do? They're afraid of exploding. Yeah. One of the uh, jokes on social media that's quickly become hack is uh, how can I make this about me? How can I make this um, Ukraine thing about me? And uh, I'm actually trying to do the opposite. How can I make this not about me? Uh, When I became a comedian, I did not expect to be inserted in uh, geopolitical affairs uh, in in such a way. I have, in case you don't know, I am an employee of RT America, uh, which- What does that stand for? I, well, it's actually now it's like SAT. It doesn't actually stand for anything. It's just letters. Wait, did they so, change um, it? Russian Today changed their name? Yeah, it's like SAT. It used to be standard aptitude test. I don't know why they changed that, but they did at some point. Now, what does it stand still for SAT. now? Nothing. It's just SAT. Just what? like RT. RT. <laughs> no, RT stood for something, though. It stood for Russia Today. It did, yes, but now it's stands for, it stands for nothing. <laughs> this can't be correct. Like this um, can't be true. You got to stand for something or you'll fall for anything. That's what that song was about. Mm. Have you learned anything from President Volodymyr Zelensky this week about standing for things? <laughs> you have to stand for things. I yes, You sent I, us that clip of him playing the piano with his dick for five minutes. That's right. Um, I don't know if people know this, but he did, you know, yeah, as we mentioned, he's a comedian, very surreal situation. I mean, in general, if you're Ukrainian, but to have, I mean, this is like one step beyond Trump, maybe. We almost did an episode about him when he got elected. I remember because that's right. Yeah. His thing, the president of Ukraine, is that he was like a protest candidate, kind of Trump style that they elected because like uh, everyone was pissed off. And so there was this guy who was playing the president on a TV show as a joke. And then he ran for president and won. 
so the, like the the fake it's like leslie nope or whatever like became her actual job in real life like he mm. became the real president um but we ended up not doing it i remember because it was like we were like this will probably never come up again and we probably should have done it <laughs> not that it you know, maybe really matters yeah i you look i have uh nothing but sympathy for him um i think you know uh yes it is a bad situation on all sides for everybody really um right now a lot of liberals are trying to make this a you're you're for or against putin right and that's you know do you support putin do you not support putin um, Yeah, good vibes right now can i just say right. that it just feels well, good <laughs> i will say that is a completely legitimate question to ask me i'll be straightforward you you can ask me that question i'm serious like that's a totally valid question i would never uh, I am, ask you that <laughs> you can because you're it's my you best know, friend Oh, thank you. Likewise. But you can ask me that and I will tell you. And as, as I am free to do, I am not censored. I am not under any obligation to spin anything about Putin. I say exactly what I think and my commentary. My work is not edited or censored. Uh, I don't support Putin. I think he's an autocrat um, and I don't support this invasion. It, it feels awful. I'll it be feels honest. Bad. Yeah. It threatens world security. Right. Not to mention all those people who live in Ukraine. Yes, especially them. Um, They're having a tough one. Right. And it's, you know, and I don't see anything wrong with taking their side and taking the side of or, you know, supporting and expressing solidarity with them or especially Russian protesters. Which it's illegal to protest over there, right? Like, aren't all those people being like thrown in jail? I'm sure some of them are. It's it's like a gray area where they still have like elected officials in some capacity. There are members of the Duma, right, who um, are against the war. Or there, there's one guy who's kind of doing the John Kerry thing where he's like, well, I actually did vote for the you know resolution bef- before I voted against it. He's like backtracking, doesn't think it was as a good idea. I didn't think it would happen as you know. None of us did either. Right. We will probably end up on a supercut of leftist podcasts who in the past couple of weeks have been saying this isn't going to happen. This is an invade. This this ridiculous idea that Putin would invade Kiev is insane. All that all that stuff. Right. Well, I mean, it's a bad idea. Right. It's a bad idea. And no one thought it would happen because, uh, look, we have an echo chamber, too. Right. Everybody has their own echo chamber. Ours is, I think the best and this is one thing where folks (laughs) it rocks this and let's be clear uh the intelligence community was perhaps well they were probably right about this who knows what actual intel they were operating on um but this is one point on the board for truth and accuracy in reporting that goes for the mainstream media as well uh against like hundreds if not more of just distortions, lies about, you know, things to justify American imperialism. Crying wolf situation where like, yeah, the reason I did not believe you is because you're constantly lying about this exact thing. Right. It, yeah. And who knows what, if they actually, you know, what they actually knew and, you know, maybe they had weak intelligence and it turned out to be true. You're talking but about the Americans? Yeah, 
Because they yeah. were saying, you know, Putin's going to invade, and we're like, nah. You well, know, I mean, I think it, the real question is like, what at the end of the why did they do it? Like, it does not really behoove Russia in a near future to invade Ukraine. Uh, they're going to get. I mean, first of all, you risk starting World War Three, which I think uh upset some people this week <laughs> i did not sleep very well on wednesday for example um that's a real risk if you avoid that like hopefully we've done by this point uh your country's gonna be fucking hit by economic sanctions from everybody every country that you trade with in the world because you look like a huge asshole uh that's happening the only takeaway i've gotten from this is that putin wanted essentially to send a message that he you just can't tell him what to do and he sent that at the cost of thousands of lives so hopefully it won't be thousands of lives but it, it very well very well could be you know and right now world war three sounds um not like it's gonna happen but neither did this so who the prediction game is out out the window at this point um, I think if you want to understand Putin's rationale, there is a real politique at play. Um, it's, you know, there's no justification for it. But if you want to understand it on a strategic level, there's this um, analysis by Rob Lee, no relation, who's like a milita U.S. military guy, not is, you know, an American and all that stuff. But he really takes a sort of uh, realist look like John Mearsheimer has done at the situation uh, and what, what the rationale is here, why he would do this. Um, and the thing that I find to be really disturbing is, you know, when I was saying earlier, ask me all you want, you, you can press me on my relationship with the Russian government, which sounds absurd to say as a professional clown. Uh, but there are people getting dragged through the mud who have no relation to Russia, who have simply provided context. People who denounce Putin, denounce the invasion, and they add, how did this happen? Well, let's look at NATO. Let's look at the history here. Let's look at 2014. Let's look at the U.S. funding Nazi battalions in eastern Ukraine. And they are called Putinites and Putin apologists even after denouncing him. And that really, I think, is the most disturbing one of the most disturbing parts of this as an American, you know, that because this is no different. Liberals are doing it. But and many of them were doing the, doing this, you know, 18 years ago or whenever it was uh, during Iraq. But uh, there were a lot of people in America who were not in favor of the Iraq war and they were asked the same thing. Do you support Saddam Hussein? Do yeah. you think Saddam Hussein should be overthrown? You're either with him or against him. You're doing what about ism if you try to provide context or you try to say that U.S. involvement is not going to help anything. There's uh, a lot of like reduction going on. Yeah. Because this is like a what no class analysis does to a motherfucker situation, I, I think. I think this is what's kind of been stressing me out so much is seeing the various tunnels that people are allowing themselves to be funneled into because of a lack of understanding and like nuance of this. This is going to turn into massive culture war type shit where it's you like Putin. If you don't do, if you don't exactly, you know, 
agree with me on this exact line about uh whatever then then you must you know be pro this or whatever yeah if you so much as mention nato you're yeah. apologizing for food this is from people who started paying attention to this two weeks ago and for eight years there's been a civil war in eastern ukraine where russian separatists have been killed and there's been a whole mess that we just don't need to take part in our government has no place in doing this and it has been fun and this is the other thing is when you mentioned the nazis right uh that the u.s has been funding the Azov battalion right sector um you're called a you know that's putin propaganda when look Putin is exaggerating, right? He, I don't think he really cares if there's Nazis in Eastern Ukraine. He it's cares funny because if- he, he's saying, like, I'm going, this is why I'm invading this country is to do de- denazification or whatever. The, yeah. the, rea- the thing that's fucked up about that is not that it's not true. It's just that it's not why he's doing it. There's right. totally Nazis in there. Yes, that we have been funding. And, and like, if you just point that out, people say, you know, the, the sort of the checkmate here is that Zelensky is Jewish. And they're like, well, if there's so many Nazis, why would Ukraine have a Jewish president? Game, set, match. Boom, it's Mm. over. Uh, Who said that they're popular? You know, are Nazis a problem in the United States? I think so. Not nearly as much of a problem as they are in Ukraine. In neither country are they popular among the general population, right? If... If they were, we wouldn't need to be sending them weapons and funding them. Right. And it's you know, I don't think the U.S. government is doing that because they're Nazis either. But uh, like that is they are being supported in eastern Ukraine. It doesn't do anybody any favors to paper over that. And it's this rush to, you know, uh, sort of destroy all analysis of the situation that might put things in the context that might suggest that there's not really a U.S. role here that we maybe helped create this crisis. Uh, And it's just a way of justifying imperialism from people who do not give one wit about the sanctions on Afghanistan right now, the bombing of Somalia, the occupation of Palestine, all the crimes that the U.S. government is perpetrating right now, if you bring that up, they will accuse you of whataboutism. And let's be very clear. I, you know, there's some people who say whataboutism is a total nonsense word. Um, that's just, you know, a cold war, cold war hysteria. And that's all true. But let's take it very literally. Right. Because there are people who are doing this who refuse to um, say that, you know, Putin is wrong in invading Ukraine. There's a small segment of uh, Americans who are doing that. Uh, and I guess you could say that's either what aboutism or Putin apologia. But if you're going to extend that to anyone who criticizes American imperialism, then I'm sorry, but you are full of shit. You are a hypocrite and you don't actually care about people suffering right now. Yeah. Uh, domestically, you know, I think what we're tapping into strong 2003 vibes around here, yeah. um, a, a weather vane of kind of how people's minds are going right now and how, you know, uh, uh, people who consider themselves apolitical or uh, in the center are, are t- responding to this situation in America. Uh, Tim Dillon's tweet he did in the middle of the week about how Russia invading Ukraine should remind all Americans that their enemies are Russians and Chinese and not <laughs> their neighbors. 
He's and, so like, smart, it was some dude. big, like, uh, you uh, heard this podcast. It's, it's intellectual, dude. It's so smart. <laughs> it's so dangerous. It's really bad. <laughs> One of the most confused human beings on political issues in like it's amazing and it's i've heard him genuinely say well i think it's good for comedians to not have consistent opinions yeah he's an <laughs> idiot. i'm so glad he's getting dragged all over twitter for that because especially like left twitter because like there's just a while where he was like part of the like the dirt baggy like edgy you know thing where like we're gonna work with them to do to talk to the maga people or whatever and like He's a fucking moron and an asshole, and like he got dragged by Rev Left Radio, which made me be very happy. That that's a he's oh, really? bad. <laughs> this sucks. Do not listen to people like this. They're not smart just because they're funny. Right. He sees where his money's coming from these days, and he knows what to say. But I mean, th- the situation is absurd. It's like one foreign country attacked another foreign country, and your takeaway is that foreigners are your enemy. Chinese, <laughs> not even like the government, just chi- like Chinese taking like in other countries friendly Instantly. fire in this exchange, just blasted through a wall. What <laughs> <laughs> he was the point he was trying to make. I was like a, a I, I I am not obsessed with European geopolitics. I'm obsessed with people like Tim Dillon's brain. Okay, and like I I think I could see why he like constructed this take and why he thought it would fucking take off because what he's trying to do ultimately most of the time is performatively like uh, attack and reduce liberals who are a source of anxiety. Everybody kind of hates the fact that these people are running around, you know, doing uh, social justice like incorrectly and stuff like that. So like the idea they have terrible vibes. They suck, right? And so what he's doing is he's, t- he's trying to like harness that resentment that exists, you know, from everyone around liberals. And so the point of this fucking statement is your your enemy is not the person next door to you that thinks slightly different than you, right? He's trying to paint a picture of a stupid liberal who is like the source of all problems in America, being that they're intolerant of uh, people that live in cul-de-sacs and vote for Trump and stuff like that. And like, you know, like Kyle Rittenhouse and yada, yada. He's if you listen to what he talks about, he's always apologizing for like he's he's always trying to point out that liberals are closed minded because, and you know, leftists. But I think he's one of those people that lumps them all together or whatever. People are closed minded in that, you know, they talk as if everyone hates Kyle Rittenhouse. But like, but you have to understand, like your average person thinks, you know, that that was probably a pretty good idea. So he's he's sort of like portraying himself as if he's meeting people where they're at. But then his conclusion is like that the real enemy is Chinese people. You know? <laughs> there and are not, so many of them. The, your real enemy is the ruling class of yeah. all societies that you were pretty close, but unfortunately you have to read and stuff to actually unfortunately, get Unfortunately, way, way off in a way that <laughs> threatens the future of the human race. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, it doesn't surprise me like Tim said something stupid, but the scary part of it is, sure, our friends dragged him. He's still got like 10,000 retweets and 50,000 likes. Like, this is a popular sentiment popping out, not just among reactionaries, but also among liberals. You know, yeah. this we talked on our bonus last week about how Americans are looking for a new enemy. And this seems like a very convenient way to find one. And it's popping off 
in all kinds of stupid ways, like bartenders pouring their vodka on the ground and taking yeah. videos of it. We're doing or, freedom fries with vodka because vodka is the Russian, uh, you know, thing that we can all identify as like a commodity or whatever dude greg abbott the guy who wrote the horrible you know the anti-trans bill that happened the other day he tweeted like that he's he's uh he's like encouraging everyone in texas to to fucking restock without russian vodka or some shit like that uh. He's part of it. This is <laughs> like, a huge win for the for rum and the rum community. Oh hell yeah! The twenty first century is pirate pilled. <laughs> yeah, well, you wait till we go to we're war and the somehow the the enemy is the president of Jamaica, and then you won't be drinking Goslings in your dark and stormies. Let me tell you that much. They're bombing Tortuga right now. <laughs> <laughs> It's good for rum. It's good for gin, which famously is uh, people don't understand how to drink it in the States. You know? How are you supposed to drink it? Well, it makes good cocktails. Um, and it's all right in one in ones. They're not well, supposed it's to do very shots. Anglo, though. I don't want to support. I don't think they should end up positively from this exchange. Yeah, it's British. It's like a British spirit. It's like fucking British sailors and shit. We drink bastards. it. They wouldn't get scurvy. Leave them out. I remember I. Had a when I was a young man, I just turned 21 and I had a date, and we we're, you know, drinking. And uh, we we're like, you get this round, I'll get this round, blah blah. And then I was like, we're you know, drinking beers or mixed drinks or whatever. And then I was like, uh, let's, I guess, let's do shots of vodka. And yeah. then it completely ruined the date. <laughs> she had and to go now home. Now you work for Russian television. <laughs> <laughs> It's a pipeline. Answer me this, Anders. Do you disavow Vladimir Putin and all of his works? Are you what about? Are you building a pipeline to send Taka vodka to Russians from the states? I guess mm, Taco Bell vodka. I guess so. Taka vodka. Taka vodka. It's a brand of shitty vodka. If you were Mm. sixteen, you would know more about vodka. Yeah, it's the national spirit. You know, Ninety nine bananas was the first thing I got drunk off. Is that vodka? Good lord! Is that a rum? What is that? I don't think I've uh, ever heard it's a of that. Flavored rum. Okay, I like rum. I think that's my favorite spirit currently. Is this a rum podcast? I'm now realizing. Yeah, yeah. Are we rum. all rum pilled in here? Let's talk about um, some of the bizarre side effects of all this stuff being expressed through internet culture. Uh, yes. The Simpsons tweeted like a photo, fo- like a photo, like a drawing of them with the Ukrainian flags. Cause it's blue and yellow. So it's like Marge holding it and it looks like her hair. Right. Yeah, what was that supposed to mean? Was that supposed to signify that she like put the flag stick in her hair or it just was naturally growing out of her, her hair? Her hair like- was the flag. I think the artist concept was like, isn't their flag like Marge? I think that's kind of what they were going for. I, I mean, don't know what it was supposed to mean. See, I, I thought with it was Marge. <laughs> I thought it was actually very impressive impressionist uh, work there because the looks on their faces are all totally just blank. They have no idea what's going on. And well, they don't just, know what like, to say. Yeah, they're they're just like, a uh, gun at them. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> really weird. Like it, does, it changes the meaning of whatever the fuck is supposed right. to be happening. But that's also just because they are like a meat, like 
that they can't mean anything at this point because they've been dragged on way too long into their existence. So all the jokes about them are just nonsense. There are, there is like has like three ends. different decades. He was born in at this point. Yeah. Right. The cannon keeps recycling a nightmare. A night, it's another, a mess. Here's another weird thing. Uh, that Louis CK show was supposed to happen, but also Sean Penn is over there, like filming a documentary, which is, he I, he must just had some weird CIA handler drop him off over there like, before <laughs> all this happened. But it's a guy. My take on it is like, is are they just sending all the canceled people over there like a Suicide Squad type situation? Or they're like, we got to call in Cosby to bring down the ghost of Kiev or whatever. I, well, Russia is woke, and so they're hoping that by supplying kind of like a kryptonite of canceled actors and comedians, they can repel them away from the uh, pristine and traditional Ukrainian women and people. Wait, Russia is bringing in the comedians or the Ukraine is? I think American intelligences are deploying our most canceled men and women to Ukraine to repel Russia culturally. Because I've seen a lot of footage of Russian soldiers this week and they're crying in a lot of them and they're being told off by babushkas or whatever the Ukrainian equivalent of that is. And uh, they don't want to be there and they're upset. Okay, that makes sense. Oh, right. There's all these fucking videos of like, uh, this is totally like culture porn for liberals is like the epic clapback videos where a babushka like, you know, snaps her fingers at a Russian soldier or whatever. There was that um, that old Ukrainian woman that has been handing out sunflower seeds to Russian soldiers and saying, Put them in your pockets so that when you die, sunflowers, which are the flower of Ukraine, officially grow out of the ground. And everyone's like sharing it with like little, you know, the finger pointing down emoji. That's like this 100 percent. Yeah. Uh, And the soldiers are folding in all of the videos because uh, I think this is worth saying. This is a very unpopular war in Russia. Right. Not too many Russians are stoked to be invading Ukraine. I'm sure a bunch of psychos are, and they're probably in the military. But like statistically, you're going to get a lot of videos of old people making them cry. Yeah, they're also we should talk about the thing, right? They're uh, they're on Tinder. It's pretty funny. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> The New York Post put up a very informative article about this, and I wanted to make sure that we cover it. Uh, Russian soldiers being deployed in Ukraine and then going on Ukrainian Tinder to get that sweet Ukrissy. Ukrussy? Ukrussy. But anyway, the article starts with... Eucharist. From Russia with Lost, which I thought was pretty good, New York Post. Oh, then they're at it again. And then they're getting catfished by the Ukrainian women in kind of like a counterintelligence op situation where it's like you get no you crossy you you're you're a son of a bitch. It's a, it I feel like men on a dating app has already got to be kind of a threatening presence but then if you just saw like members of an opposing army showing up <laughs> just holding fish and stuff and being like I'm six one if that matters and stuff. It's gotta be really bizarre and scary. Here's me at your burnt out school. There's like ten of them, and you're like, which one is it? Why would you take a group photo? And Why are you your friends in this? Shit? Are you the hot one? <laughs> I was talking to Andrews about this. Like, when 
if you're deployed in an offensive operation in this country, when do you think you're like having a date? Well, that is like a historic uh, phenomenon is uh, foreign occupiers end up shacking up with um, the local the locals. Yeah, I'm, but you like, see the movie Das Boot. I have there's, not seen Das Boot. There's what it's about a Nazi submarine in World War II. Uh, very intense movie, and one of the sub dudes had has had a fling with a French girl who's part of the French resistance. I believe she's part of it, uh, but she gets pregnant, and there's like a dilemma about she could be executed because she had her. Kid with the Bro, I know about like soldiers impregnating the people they're invading, but to yeah. like formalize it on an app seems well. That's what they think is going to happen. <laughs> you know, I feel I think this is the same exact thing that soldiers probably have wanted to do in every other war, right? Where it's like, okay, I'm either going to die or I'm going to we're going to end up occupying this place. Uh, so I, I might die assume. today. Time to open my phone, do the wordle, and try to fuck a woman in the place that i'm invading yeah i wonder if it's borscht nope too many letters how it's about... never borscht <laughs> uh, you guys do wordle i, uh... I do i do the word <laughs> yeah brother i know i'm gonna get sucked into it like i got addicted to words with friends bit ago yeah do you still play solitaire looks... every day oh yeah i have it open well no i don't have it open right now that's actually impressive that i don't have it open at this moment, although it's because I changed it, changed the format without I accidentally did that and I can't change it back. And so I haven't been playing it as much. The format yeah, of solitaire retroactively help me understand something. Have you been playing solitaire every time we've recorded over Zoom since 2020? I'd say 70 percent. You the can time. watch his eyes <laughs> while I mean, we do this. You see him moving the cards around. <laughs> incredible. Yeah, and it, it, the incredible thing too is I'm not even good at it. I like still I the version I play you can reverse and undo your moves and I still manage to lose. It's incredible. That's why I, incredible. I don't think I'd be good at Wordle. I'm okay at No, I'm not good at Scrabble. I love playing Scrabble. I'm not good at any of these games, but some of them I like playing. I think Thank Wordle God, is too fighting. intellectual to be playing during a podcast. I'll say it. It uses the wrong part of your brain. Wordle? You need to use your wordles to make hot takes on the podcast. Yeah, yeah but then you'll say the wrong word accidentally. You know, like uh, you'll accidentally say screw or something when you're trying to say invade. Uh, I don't know. Uh, and it'll screw is five letters. And yeah, that is my main a... problem with wordle is I'm thinking of six letter words. They're all six. No, they're, five. they're all five. They're all five. OK, yeah, I got it right. So you haven't even done. Okay. Um, what do you think? Like, there's a theory that the because Wordle was started by like some random programmer who kind of ingeniously programmed this thing that if you're, I guess, into this sort of shit, you would understand. Oh, it's a genius program because it's all run off of like the website or something. So it's like run off of people's phones. It's it's very little data. Um, yada yada yada. That was don't like don't why. skip the most important part. It, Wordle was created by Josh Wardle. Wait, really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wait, wait, no, hold on. Tinfoil hat time. War? Like W-A-R? Oh. That's how it's spelled. That's how it's spelled. 
here's what I'm getting at. It was purchased then by the New York Times, which, as we all know, they love to manufacture consent for wars. Maybe so people think that when it was purchased by the New York Times, they changed the words that are like the clues to make them like uh, smarter and thus harder and shit. So there's a lot of people that are like pissed off about that. I don't think that's true. I'm not entirely sure, but maybe, you know, they're trying to subconsciously like sell us on this war with what the words are every day. So it's going to be like, you know, justifiable uh, <laughs> WMDs and stuff. Yeah oil none of this stuff is five letters but you catch my drift treason is slav <laughs> yeah right. one day it's just five letter word of the day <laughs> it just changes to being <laughs> 10 letters long at some point well this is a really good news podcast but yes. uh with all that said i think it's time to move on to our guest oh yeah that's right you know there's uh, so many different angles to take on this current situation so many you know different phenomena stemming from it so many africa is now or will be soon probably experiencing uh rising food prices because of this it's the world is an interconnected place i tell you um but one aspect that we think is extremely important is the biggie energy which has a lot to do with the current crisis in Ukraine. Let's go to the tape. We are now joined by Kate Aronoff. She's a staff writer at The New Republic, also known as New Republic, as well as the author of a great book called Overheated. Kate, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. So hey, what do you think about adding V to New Republic? <laughs> You know, I, uh, as a staff writer, take a sort of backseat to the, the high-level administrative decisions. So I'll I'll leave that to my my overlords. Okay, because this saying seems like a bit of an inconsistency here. We got TNR, which is often the acronym used to describe it, but the website is just newrepublic.com. There's no the. Ah. Uh, maybe someone took that domain back in the day. Um, Andrew Sullivan coveted it. It's a Ukraine versus the Ukraine situation. Also very confusing. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Well, there's no time for that. In a way, (laughs) Ukraine Ukraine is a new republic uh, of its own. That's a really Um, good point. Let's see if I can segue into the question from that. Um, (laughs) But it has been a new republic for a while. uh, But you know what else is uh, an old republic, not so old, is Russia. Um, and they have had this pipeline situation, Nord Stream, um, and they're in the process. Uh, well, why don't we start by explaining what is Nord Stream? Because we, we got two of them, right? We got Nord Stream 1 and uh, Nord Stream 2. Neither of them are any good. Um, why don't you take us through the Nord Stream situation? Sure. And I, I will preface all of my answers here just by saying I am not a regional expert on Russia, Ukraine, the Baltic states. This is not, you know, I cover energy and climate, and that's the sort of place where I um, come at this out. But I do think a lot about pipelines and oil and gas and things like that. So that that will be my blanket preface before we start. Um, Nord Stream 2 
has been a political football between the EU, Russia, and to some extent the United States for a number of years. So just what is it uh, on a basic level? It's a pipeline that would bring uh, gas to Europe from Russia uh, under the Baltic Sea. Uh, and it would roughly double the amount of gas currently flowing to Europe from Russia. So a lot of that currently is through existing pipeline infrastructure, including Nord Stream 1. And the addition of Nord Stream 2, which is built but not yet operational, uh, would expand that um, by 55 billion cubic tons per year, which is quite a lot. That, yeah. that, that's a lot. Um, and there's been various sorts of opposition to it. So on the one hand, uh, climate organizers and environmentalists have raised a lot of objections in the ways people uh, might be familiar with from sort of anti-pipeline protests here over um, the potential that pipelines have to leak, as they often do, over its implications for carbon dioxide emissions, for methane emissions, which are really, really considerable. Um, and that so is one sort of node of the opposition to Nord Stream 2. The other has been very different from the likes of people like Ted Cruz. Um, and, you know, until some sort of complications in this over the last several months from, you know, a pretty widespread of the American political establishment, including the Obama administration, including um, the Trump administration. And that's because it has been longstanding policy through several administrations um, to try to, quote unquote, diversify Europe's sources of gas, right? So Russia provides currently about um, a third of the gas to Europe, um, more than that to Germany in particular, um, which has been an important U.S. ally, obviously, for a long time. Um, and there have been long-running State Department programs, long-running programs through U.S. embassies, USAID, a number of, you know, sort of state apparatuses that are generally pretty quiet, um, but to encourage specifically since the shale boom took off around the, the um, sort of aftermath of the Great Recession um, to encourage Europeans to take up more American LNG, um, the Global Shale Gas Initiative. And sorry, what does LNG stand for? Liquefied natural gas. Gotcha. Okay. Which is um, in some ways kind of a byproduct of oil extraction. And hmm. um, once the United States started digging a lot of oil um, after um, this very old technology called um, shale drilling, uh, fracking, as, as people might know it, um, became viable for a host of reasons. Maybe we want to talk about, maybe we don't. They're quite complicated. Um but that became viable because oil prices were high, because debt was very cheap. It's a very capital-intensive process. America was suddenly producing a lot of gas and a lot of oil um, after after the Great Recession, and there were there was a very keen interest um, by the State Department to sell that oil and gas to many places, but um, you know especially to Europe uh, to diversify uh, European energy to natural gas. So. Um, Circling back to Nord Stream 2, just briefly, um, Nord Stream 2 has been opposed by a lot of political leaders in the United States um, because uh, they you know, saw this as sort of a geopolitical danger, um, but also um, there was this sort of long-running effort to um, create 
markets essentially for um, U.S. LNG. Right. And so this is uh, the production that America has been doing in this area. That's what Obama was bragging about a few years ago. I think the first year into his ex-presidency was like, that was me, people, about mm-hmm. the uh, production. To a room full of oil executives. To be <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, in just, Houston. But, oh, in Houston. Wow. Jake's hometown. Um, Coincidence. Yeah. <laughs> but I guess I, I, I was fracked from the earth. That's how I was born. <laughs> Houston Texan right here. Um, but how what what should have Obama been doing instead? Uh, what what could he have been bragging about in theory instead of more natural gas that's destroying the planet? That's a good it's a good question. I mean, Thank you. <laughs> the approach of the Obama administration, which I will say is, is has changed in some ways under the Biden administration. But um I would say by and large is, is is the same was all of the above, right? And so we can, on the one hand, encourage uh, the development of renewable energy, of, you know, clean technology. And on the other hand, we can encourage the development of natural gas because for a long time, including up into the present, um, quote unquote, natural gas, which, you know, you can call methane gas um, or just gas, which is how I tend to like to write about it. Um has been thought of as a clean fuel, as a bridge fuel, as a sort of thing that can transition specifically, uh, you know, economies from coal and then to gas and then eventually to renewables. The problem with that and why, you know, I think this line from the Obama administration was so dangerous and, you know, easy to see, even when there was more plausible deniability that gas could be a bridge fuel, is that if you bring online this infrastructure, which is burning fuel, which is not carbon neutral, right? gas emits about half of the carbon um, of of uh, burning coal uh, and, uh, you know, much a lot of methane emissions, right, which are sort of ubiquitous to the process. Um, there's this effort to say that it's just leaks. But, you know, there was a study this, this week from the International Energy Agency finding that methane emissions, um, which are about 80 times more potent than uh, than than carbon as a greenhouse gas over the short term, um, that they've been underreported by about 70%. So this is a huge carbon problem, a huge greenhouse gas problem, excuse me, um, and a, a climate disaster. And if you build out that infrastructure, which is essentially the, the thrust of state policy to encourage gas rollouts domestically and abroad, you are locking in those emissions for decades to come. Because if you build... An LNG terminal, these sort of regasification um, terminals, which are needed to um, basically turn what is liquefied natural gas back into gas, so it can be used um, used in in you know various heating uh, heating uses and, and things like that. Um, those will just stay online for you know as long as they those companies want to maintain them. Uh, and so you know even if there was some plausible like uh, you know argument to be made that gas was a bridge fuel, that it was cleaner than coal, um, locking those in for decades, which is just how, you know, energy infrastructure works, uh, is, is really unconscionable. And, you know, what could Obama have done better, right? It's There was a pretty light touch uh, for the investments made in renewables and natural, in um, renewables in, um, you know, various sorts of electric vehicle uh, technologies and things like that. And this really sort of aggressive push by 
the State Department by, you know, these various arms of um, of the U.S. government to encourage markets for uh, for gas with an enthusiasm that was not brought to bear onto much cleaner technologies. Right. And, uh, and obviously, this is not just the Obama administration or the U.S. government. This is the EU. This is Putin. This is yes. everybody yeah. not really prioritizing, maybe arguably, you know, the Chinas and Cubas of the world, but uh, slowly, but, you know, hopefully, surely. But uh, they this with this Nord Stream situation, you've written about alternatives uh, that could have been we could have been investing in, in a, on a national an international scale, excuse me, um, instead of more more gas. Uh, what what could have been done? in Europe specifically, instead of Nord Stream Part 2? Yeah, I think asking what could have been done is is the right question. because I love it's, asking it's, what could have been done, because it's, it's <laughs> incredibly, it's armchair policymaking. I love, you know, being an armchair quarterback for this stuff. It's very easy. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, well, so uh, what could have been done is a good, is, is the way to ask that question, because there aren't really any short-term fixes in one right. way or the other to um, what could be a potentially quite serious crisis facing Europe if indeed um, Putin does decide to turn off taps, which is a slightly complicated process. Um, but what could have been done, you know, 10, 15 years ago, uh, the European Union, which, you know, is not an innocent party in this, uh, in this conversation, um, could have you know, invested in a concerted decarbonization effort and not the strategy that they chose very similarly to the U.S., what, which was, you know, this coal to gas switch, which was the entire sort of purpose of the European emissions trading scheme, um, which, you know, started started uh, in, the, in the 2010s. I'm forgetting the exact date that the ETS got, got up and running. Um, but, you know, that was the a big part of the goal of European climate policy for a long time was to encourage a coal to gas switch. Um, and what that has meant, right, is that they are using gas. A lot of that is now um, this geopolitical weapon uh, uh -huh. as fossil fuels have been historically. Right. Why right. is there a need for a bridge fuel? That seems like bizarre logic to me, or is it just because there's not really that much uh, renewable energy technology yet? What you will hear on the bridge fuel line um, is that renewable power is in intermittent, right? So if the sun is not shining, if wind is not blowing, um, that you will need something to sort of fill those gaps in between. Firm power is what kind of energy wants. We'll call it um, natural gas, gas, methane gas has been posed as sort of a a way to do that, right? That is a, a thing that can be stored um, ostensibly more stably uh, than, you know, other things. It's easier to access in some ways than geothermal, which is, um, you know, one way that that could be used. Those, those resources haven't been really developed in a, in a big way uh, in, in many places, but there's this idea that you need this sort of um, sort of stable fuel. But as we're seeing right now, you know, there, there's very little that is stable about fossil fuel markets, right? There's yeah. very little um, that is, is not subject to volatility, to geopolitical tension. Um, yeah. So the big thing to me this week is that Russia invaded Ukraine. 
Um, a big deal. Been on that for it's very close to his home. As we've addressed before, I am an empath, but um, (laughs) I guess what a lot of people may be having trouble wrapping their minds around is how is this related to the energy industry and what kind of developments can we expect to see going forward from American gas companies and just from Europe's energy infrastructure in general right now? Yeah, I mean, energy is wound into almost every part of this crisis, maybe not every part, but it is hard, I think, to talk about this situation without talking about the energy landscape in some way. On, on the one hand is what I mentioned a little earlier, which is that there's bi- there's this big threat, right, that um, Putin could cut off gas to Europe, um, which would be, uh, could be a, a crisis, uh in a in a really serious way, depending on you know how long that lasts, depending on how cold the next um, the next weeks and months are, it's not clear that that's going to happen. But you know, it wasn't clear um, to many people that uh, he would launch a full scale invasion of Ukraine uh, either. So you know, anything anything right now is on the table, um, and uh, that is is the main reason why we're hearing so much about. Oil and gas. Now, I mean, something I've been tracking, which is a little um, closer to you know my sort of beat than the politics of of Russian and Ukraine, is how American companies have been responding to this because there has, as I mentioned, been this longstanding push to open up markets in Europe for uh, for American LNG in particular, American gas, um, and so you know, pretty immediately after the invasion, and there had been rumblings of this uh, in, in in the weeks leading up to it, you see the likes of the American Petroleum Institute, the largest lobby for oil and gas companies in the United States, um, you know, being almost triumphant <laughs> about mm. uh, what they want, like 9 p.m., you know, hours before the invasion begins, uh, in the early hours of the morning, EST, uh, the American Petroleum Institute puts out this tweet thread of like its wish list, basically for the Biden administration, um, arguing you know that in order to protect energy security at home and abroad, you need to uh, allow us to buy public land to frack on. That is, huh. you know, <laughs> what they're yeah. arguing. So you know, it's not. I don't want to like fall into the sort of like bad left trope of like war for oil, you know, they don't think that that is what's happening here, but there are companies which will make out very well. Right. There's further disruption of European energy markets. When the economy is based on oil, the war has got to be for something, you know, (laughs) it's a, it's linked into everything by this point. It is not unrelated. (laughs) It's definitely part of the, how various players are responding to, to Uh, this. I read that piece you wrote in the New Republic, and it was very funny reading like the quotes from some of the executives who were saying, you know, they're sort of rattling off statistics about how great everything is going to be, and then every every few lines inserting in a uh, addendum to say, but we do have thoughts and prayers for the people. Obviously, very sad. Anyways, you know, it's pretty <laughs> our great. hearts are breaking, but these next three quarters are looking fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> so there's never been a better time to get on board. Yeah. And that call was literally hours after. I mean, this call had been scheduled for a long time, but um, this earnings call from uh, 
Chenier, I believe is how it's pronounced, the largest uh, U.S. Uh, LNG exporter. And it's just, you know, ecstatic <laughs> in the beginning. They're not, they're not talking about... Um, Talking about the crisis, you know, necessarily in the beginning, but one of the analysts from uh, some bank or investment firm, you know, brings it up and they say, oh, it's such a tragedy, it's such a tragedy, but this looks very good for us in, 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 in so many words. Right. right. Some, some of them were like criticizing Biden for not for uh, taking the U.S. out of Keystone on his first day in office uh, as if that would have like somehow prevented this or something like that and, and you know but <laughs> obviously that's a he's... republican line right is that right biden's green agenda in quotes uh showed weakness like when a dog exposes its belly to the russian <laughs> bear which then proved they could do this psychotic thing that kind of damages their economy right now <laughs> And it's not something that's like tied into the real world, but it is a line they're going to keep using. So it is worth mentioning. <laughs> yeah, the GOP line on this is the most unhinged, I think, um, in part, you know, because a just like Keystone has nothing to do with this, like cannot emphasize enough just how little um, how little bearing that has either um, really on like the domestic situation here of fuel prices being higher or like the United States ability to export more gas to Europe, like really um, besides the point. And so you saw the GOP really trying to combine these two arguments that, you know, the Biden administration has held back um, our ability to produce um, and that is keeping prices high at home and, uh, keeping us from doing our patriotic duty by selling very expensive gas to Europe. Um, and it's just, I mean, the companies like high prices. That is, I think, the thing that is just lost on so many people is that these companies like $100 per barrel oil um, because it makes fracking viable. Like high prices are what makes fracking work. And that's, you know, some of the, the that's that's most of the production um, that that is happening here. And that's a play. Yeah, I mean, we could have blown up six more mountains. We're wasting our time over here. Um, I, d I do have a question about that because a lot of people are talking about that since the invasion. Uh, you pointed out in your article, it's not just conservatives. Traditionally, you also have uh, people like Matt Iglesias saying that there's never been a better time to kind of cut a deal with Republicans and uh, start going overdrive into fracking so that we can send our gas to Europe. Is it even... Would we even be able to possibly like send that amount of gas over to Europe, like the amount that Russia would be cutting off hypothetically? No, no, there's problems <laughs> on both ends, ends of the spectrum. And I have been going uh, out of my mind <laughs> watching <laughs> like uh, Matt Iglesias, David Frum, uh, you know, just various sort of centrist pundits like put on their, you know, smart energy analyst hat and pretend they know something about this. So the problems are on both ends, right? And so on the one hand, the United States is currently producing about at its limits that it can produce in terms of oil, about 12, 12 million barrels per day, I believe is the figure. Um, and just based on what infrastructure exists, that's about what we can make, right? That is about what 
Um, the industry has the capacity to transport, to export, um, the ships, the terminals, um, which there, you know, are not that many, which, uh, liquefy the gas for, to put on tankers, to go overseas are about at capacity. Um, and these companies just don't want to do it. Like the, we don't need to get into the reasons why, but, um, you know, frackers in particular spent the last decade or so burning through cash, burning through investor money. Uh, and now in part, you know, because the price crashed during COVID, um, which was a disaster for them, they are, you know, not drilling as much as they were. Um, and are pretty resolute about keeping that the case. So they don't want to do it. Um, and there just aren't very many tools for uh, the White House or, or anyone else to really compel them to do that. Like we just, you know, we don't have a national oil company. We don't have um, control over our resources in that way. It is a sort of anarchic free, it's not a free market, but it's, it's, it's anarchic and is left up to private sector decision-making to decide um, how much oil and gas is produced. So there's very little that could be done. And the United States is about at its limits for um, capacity on the European end. Um, there is spare LNG capacity in Spain in particular. So the, there are these terminals which can um, accept uh, gas from the United States or or elsewhere can uh, regasify it, but they're not connected to the rest of the continent by and large. So there isn't like a pipeline infrastructure in place, and so there's just it's there's not a good argument to be made um, at basically any point along that spectrum. Um, and it's yeah, I, I mean it's it's just sort of jaw dropping how dumb <laughs> the argument that like we just have to drill baby drill to like do our uh you know no bless oblige you don't think we, we have enough apaches to airdrop the amount of oil over there like a, a, a flock like how birds move south in the winter oh there have been there was a there was a um op-ed in the wall street journal i think it was like ken griffin um it's like an op or an op-ed op-ed this is a Finland. tangent, but I'm now imagining how much fuel it would take for that many helicopters to carry that amount of oil. But uh, <laughs> back to the original idea. <laughs> yeah, there was an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal comparing um, tankers from the U.S. going to Europe to the Berlin airdrop. <laughs> <laughs> tankers being, you know, undertaking a market transaction to sell very expensive <laughs> gas to to Europe. Um, that is, you know us fighting wow like, okay they did it in vietnam operation yeah. dumbo drop i We're guess just, this would be much much heavier than that um but i'm curious dumb drop more like folks. Yeah, there you go folks all right <laughs> but some people are starting to frame this as like this is underscores the need for energy independence and there are some like environmentalists who are saying you know when we're talking about green you know, decarbonizing the economy, that's that's because of, uh, you know, that's important because of, we need to be energy independent in the United States. Do you think that is like the right framework to use on this? Because as we're seeing now, the world is so interconnected. The, the global economy is, you know, every nation is interconnected and, and um, this has to be fought. Climate change has to be fought on an international scale. Um, do you think that sort of quote unquote energy independence is, you know, is do you think it has um, political uh, 
shrewdness um, that, or do you think it's like not really that useful in understanding how these systems work and should work? I think by and large, that's the right approach. Like what needs to happen is for Europe and particularly for wealthy nations, which have the capacity to make a rapid transition away from fossil fuels to do so. And climate is obviously a very big part of the reasons to do that, to leave space in the carbon budget, um, the sort of amount of, of, of greenhouse gases that can be emitted, um, to leave space for, you know, countries which can't do that as quickly yeah. for, you know, uh, many, many reasons, including long histories of imperialism and colonialism. Um, so that's that's a big reason. But the other areas we're seeing right now is because, you know, fossil fuels bring with them just this whole mess of like geopolitical uh, nonsense and, mm -hmm. and have for as long as they've existed. And decarbonizing is a good way to get out of those, you know, specific sets of geopolitical context. I think where sometimes this case can get overstated is pretending that, you know, this uh, economy that runs on solar and wind, primarily other sources of zero carbon power, um, will not have geopolitical tensions or will not have, mm. you know, things sort of bound up in it. Yeah. Um, there are, you know, the sort of extraction of minerals to consider, of things like lithium and cobalt, which are, um, you know, needed for batteries um, in any kind of, you know, low carbon economy, which are extracted under less than ideal conditions, are bound up in, you know, not, not very savory supply chains, right? So you're not getting rid of the idea that energy is something that is vitally important to human civilization and will create, you know, tensions within it. Um, if Europe ran on wind and solar primarily right now, it would be a much different situation vis-a-vis uh, -vis, uh, the war in Ukraine. Um, but it's not to say that a world with, uh, you know, a, a, a zero carbon world is, is not one that like does not have energy, <laughs> energy politics um, that, right. that might be quite intense. But on the, on the whole, right, I think that is that is the move. It's not to um, sort of authorize, you know, a big fleet of new uh, LNG terminals of new fossil fuel infrastructure and pipelines, um, which won't come online in any sort of time to deal with the crisis at hand. Um, but if you're looking at these long sort of time horizons in any case, on the one hand for fossil fuel infrastructure, on the other hand for decarbonization, you should obviously pursue decarbonization because it uh -huh. is where we need to go from a climate perspective and um, does alleviate some of these, you know, very particular, um, particular conflicts that are ubiquitous to a fossil fuel economy. Right. It, it seems what, you know, we're kind of gesturing towards here is an underlying problem here is, is capitalism. And, yes. you know, that makes me think about the mixed feelings I certainly felt. And I'm sure a lot of people uh, of our persuasion felt during the Super Bowl, um, not only for the Bengals loss, but for all those ads for uh, electric cars. Like what what was yeah. your thought on that? The The fact that we're, you know, finally seeing these things that, you know, I think we need. I don't know how you feel about cars in general. But, AJ and Meadow uh, Soprano can right. <laughs> right. 20 years later in their electric large van. Yeah. It, it, it felt suspicious, right? Like I was like, what's the drift here? 
what's the other shoe gonna yeah, drop? Are there's they apes to keep in the this? car. <laughs> <laughs> That's where they are. Yeah, I I felt uh, very mixed about it. I mean, mm-hmm. I didn't, like there's so many moving pieces to it. I mean, one is all these cars are so big, <laughs> like <laughs> these like electric, you know, board tanks. Um, that are being sold as like some uh, zero carbon, you know, savior for the climate is absurd. I mean, I don't know. Like the argument you will hear is like, oh, well, men need big cars. <laughs> so we have That's true. to sell the big <laughs> cars <It's> like, <laughs> as far as that goes. Um, and I don't know. I don't, I don't drive. I live in Brooklyn, right? I'm not like the target demographic for this stuff i can understand that but i don't think you know the solution to decarbonizing the transportation sector will be to um give everyone a ten thousand dollar tax credit to buy an electric hummer to drive around (laughs) brooklyn (laughs) right and plus this is uh a very small percentage right of the overall automobile market that's electric or going to soon be electric do you know what it is like yeah it's it's growing i mean it is like there is a a big shift within the automakers i mean in large part because a lot of them sell to european markets and and that's Mm. you know where they have to respond to that regulatory environment um so it's it is it is growing but i think you know to get back to the, the problem being capitalism it's like well you know under what conditions are these cars being produced what do the supply chains look like um that are you know feeding the minerals that go into the batteries that that power them um you know i don't think we're like uh really solving solving very much um by just you know tackling this very sort of tiny portion of like consumer automobiles um and not paying attention to um you know labor practices and uh supply chains and things like that right maybe if this happened 25 25- years ago which it was going to right but then they they you know as the as the title of the movie goes they killed the electric car back in the 90s Anders, let me know if you uh have any more questions you wanted to hop in with but i i was hoping we could close on a 2000 yeah, yeah. iq brain exercise here oh, no. no go ahead let's do the <laughs> yeah let's do it get out your pens and pencils um okay so Invasion of Ukraine, U.S. oil market jumps up. It looks like there is a push from the private sector who is largely straight up in control of things for increased shale production, more fracking. The uh, wheel has said more fracking, we're doing more fracking. Um, But I was thinking about it. If there are two existential crises that affect every human being on the planet, one being uh, uh, climate change, affecting the environment in a way that makes the planet no longer livable. And the other one being nuclear war all at once, making the environment no longer livable. If conditions deteriorating increases reliance on fossil fuels, how do we move forward into renewables from here? Like if every time something bad happens, we go one step backwards, what is the way instead to move out to the side and start actually planning together for this? So very that's a very hard question. Uh <laughs> you can you can use yeah. some tools here if you need to borrow like a uh, imaginary UN council that forms or aliens or anything like that go ahead but uh I just uh-huh. 
I wanted like to hear advocate. from some great minds today. Um, yeah, I mean, I think I, I think that's that's the big the big question, and you know, almost immediately, like you saw, just headlines saying climate takes a step back, and you know, it's just become much much less of a focus than it was even a couple months ago when the climate talks happened and um, in. November and you had European leaders and U.S. leaders sort of coming out and saying how 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 committed they were to you know net zero and, and and things like that. I mean, there was never really a good time um, <laughs> to like. Well, I mean, I was going to say there's never a good time to you know undertake this like massive civilizational project. I don't think it gets easier, but I think what I hope this moment can make way for is a recognition that the way our economy functions is destructive for a whole host of reasons, greenhouse gas emissions being one of them, war being another, and that one way to mitigate both of those things is to make a rapid transition. But I don't think that, you know, I would not trust the wisdom of the European Commission or the United States government to arrive at that conclusion on their own, certainly. And I just think it's very, you know, it's very hard uh, to undertake this sort of project without state power. I mean, without, you know, a, without a, a left government or you know something on that order being at least influential in in some of these conversations and so i think the path looks very hard now um you know in the sort of realm of of governments which are in play uh in um in 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 the european context and the sort of like nato conversation um you know i think some more sort of creative thinking is happening in Latin America on some of these questions um, around resource extraction. Um, some, you know, sort of left governments getting into power uh, there, which is which is very exciting. Um, but you know, I think absent, um, yeah, absent like a lot of pressure from below, and um, including uh, hopefully working, you know working its way into democratic majorities um in you know a number of places it's it's very hard to see uh yeah how situations like the one we're in now don't result in a lot of backsliding on progress that has been made so far that's a it's a very depressing answer <laughs> sorry <laughs> about as hopeful as anything else this week <laughs> yeah. um i was gonna say is uh one one thing I always think is weird is how much you hear about uh, how seriously the national security apparatus takes climate change, and they have out a thousand circumstantial playthroughs where they know exactly what will happen at every step of the way based on how much warming occurs. And none of none of those organizations ever then suggest a decarbonization to mitigate those problems. It's always like we attack Panama first, we get there so that the the canal is ours where can we do training exercises where it's not 120 degrees mm. <laughs> outside or like that it's like how do we protect our bases from sea level rise and like you know 180 countries we need the uh, boston we dynamics dog a, to float 
Yeah. <laughs> Remember when uh, Elizabeth Warren was going to make a green military for us to <laughs> use solar-powered guns and stuff? It's a big push. It's a big push. And um, relevant to what we've been talking about, I think NATO is coming out with its climate plan uh, sometime this summer, spring or summer. Ooh. So we have that your calendars. Too. <laughs> well, that's, a, that's actually maybe a good question to sort of um, synthesize this in a way, uh, because I remember that that plan and uh, one of the rejoinders to it was like, if we just withdraw all these troops and bases, that would make a huge chunk uh, that would do it, uh, you know, a lot of good for the for the climate. To what extent would that help things if we just were to, you know, wind down the empire? Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's the big thing that you know was was certainly not addressed in 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 that uh, you know decarbonize the DOD plan um, that Warren put out. Right? Is that like the U.S. military is the largest institutional consumer of fossil fuels on Earth? I believe. Um, so just on a pure like, how much coal, oil, and gas is the Pentagon consuming? That alone is a massive problem, let alone, you know, all of the state resources that are currently and have historically been directed toward, you know, allowing fossil fuels to flow freely around the world um, is just enormous. And I don't, you don't like solve that problem by uh, slapping some solar panels on a predator drone, you know, (laughs) (laughs) uh, just not, simply not the way to go um and yeah i mean i think i think it speaks to and maybe this is like a meta meta point to you know to help close out on is like i think the 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 problem there is 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 somewhat similar to the problem with this sort of like electric car obsession which is just sort of greening the stuff that we have now you know keep there's this sort of fantasy that you can keep everything else in place as it exists now the military empire um you know consumer culture urban sprawl you know all of this sort of uh, suburban sprawl you know everything that the united states does is essentially good we just need to like swap out coal-fired power plants for some wind turbines and Mm -hmm. that is there's no reason to believe that is true. There needs to be a much, much deeper um, transformation to even start sort of getting at uh, the emissions problem. That was kind of the thing about the electric car commercials. It's like, this is the end result of all this stuff, and you're just switching that. It's not really getting to the root of the problem. Yeah. I mean, lipstick on a pig, basically. Right. <laughs> it's like the totally. wonderful electric escalates. Um, well, Kate, thank you so much for coming on. Where can our readers find you? And by readers, I mean listeners, as this does not come out in any written form. Well, that's that's good. Um, <laughs> <laughs> for better and for worse, uh, you can find me on Twitter, um, just my name, at Kate Aronoff. And I write pretty regularly for The New Republic uh, a couple times a week, tnr.com. And you can pick up my book, Overheated, How Capitalism Broke the Planet and How We Fight Back at a your favorite independent book retailer. All right. Well, thank you for joining us. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. What a show. Well, time for our plugs. Uh...
Jake, what do you got going on? Yeah, come see me on tour with Eve Six and We Are the Union and Field Medic for a couple of shows. Uh, the dates are on my website and on Eve Six's website and all over Twitter and all that bullshit. Uh, my other show is Why You Mad and my handle is at Feral Jokes on Everything. And I think that's all I've got going on. At Anders Lee here on Twitter, there's the one Instagram, and uh, come check out the Eco Socialist thing, which has a date and a time that uh, I believe Alex knows. <laughs> How me on the dare spot. you throw the to me like that? <laughs> the Eco Socialist in- thing with a date and a time that Alex knows. <laughs> <laughs> Setting you up. I'm teeing you up. Yes. Okay. There is a big New York City eco-socialist Zoom meeting next Thursday at... I haven't received any emails about this. Jake, do you know the time? You want to just do this again? I'll just just, cut it out. All right. Okay, yeah, we'll put we'll put the link, the details of that in the description. If you live in New York, uh, check that out. It's going to be a uh, it's a big meeting, and we're featured in it. We're going to come say hello. Um, and if you like stand up comedy and you live in New York City, you can come to the next paid protest March eighteenth with the one and only celebrity comedian Anders Lee performing oh, live. The hockey player? No, the famous podcast Russian agent, Anders ah, Lee. Ah, okay, cool. Th- that's right. I'll Don't be there for him. one. I forgot uh, Meat Space is back on March 15th at the Gutter NYC. Yeah, Jake and I are running My competing show. shows now almost. <laughs> you can go to both. They don't have to compete. You should go to both. You can't run out of They're laughs. They're on different days. You can at my show. Oh. That's how good it is. Mine is set to unlimited laughs. If that affects your decision, so be it. Mine, you only pay in laugh coin, <laughs> which is a finite resource. Uh, if you want to follow me on Twitter, I will put any exciting updates about my thoughts and life and experiments there on uh, at Patak Test Kitchen, your number one stop for exciting new flavors. And that's going to be it for us this week. Hope next week is less bad than last one. Holy shit. All right. (laughs) Bye-bye. It's finished. It's finished.